Welcome to the Beyond 3D podcast, where we explore all things 3D and the important role that 3D data plays throughout the manufacturing process, driving decisions throughout a product's life cycle. Here, we talk with industry analysts, business owners, developers, and industry influencers, and hear real stories that you can relate to and learn from, and know which trends and technologies apply to your business. So join us as we go Beyond 3D. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Beyond 3D Podcast. My name is Angela Samoz, and we are very excited to have our guest here today. We'll be talking about a term that everybody is very familiar with, BIM. But before we jump in, let me introduce our guests. We have Dave Opsall, who is the Vice President of Corporate Development at TechSoft 3D. Hi, Dave. Hi, Angela. Good to be with you. Good to have you. And we have Mike Shilton, Product Director at Keysoft Solutions, which is based in the UK. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Angela. Good to meet you. So before we jump into the topic, if you could just give us a brief overview of who you are and about Keysoft. Yeah, so as Angela said, my name is Mike Shilton. I'm a qualified landscape architect. I'm also the product director at Keysoft Solutions, where I'm responsible for a range of products on the traffic management and landscape design elements of design and implementation. I'm also the chair of the Landscape Institute UK Digital Practice Group, of which BIM is a part of that creates the framework for that. Keysoft Solutions is a company founded back in 1986. Uh, we've been an Autodesk development partner since then. And we've also provided solutions around the Autodesk independent vendor solution, ISV. We do a bundled solution and we also do a standalone OEM solution, which is for landscape architects, which We'll probably come on to later because of financial constraints. The OEM offers, offers a, a, a nice alternative to them. Uh, I think that's a, a reasonable summary of where we are and who I am. Okay, great. And so this topic that we're going to be discussing, BIM, is something that you come across every day. And just to preface our audience, we're not going to be talking about BIM, I think, in the traditional sense of what you normally hear and why you should do it and, you know, championing the term, not not saying it's a bad thing either, but there are some misconceptions and that has presented also some barriers. So, so Mike, in your experience, what are some of the most common misconceptions about BIM that you've heard when you're talking to customers? I think in, in many cases, they don't actually know why they're implementing it or why they're doing it. And I think when we look at what the government, the UK government set out as their agenda for BIM, the, the fundamental element was that most projects run over time and run over budget, which is not good for commissioning new work and working on you know commissioning new clients. Uh, it's not good for public purse either because the public purse is under considerable constraints. So the purpose of BIM was to try and provide a focus for producing better performing, whether that's a landscape, building, bridge or whatever it's that element of it and to build into that sustainability and carbon but I think what where most people seem to be missing the, the whole point about BIM it's the whole life cycle and BIM seems to be getting focused at the moment and one of the misconceptions is that it's all about the design and construction phase of the project 
But if you look at any any cost of any development, any capital expenditure, anything you buy, the actual physical cost of buying it is far outweighed by the long-term maintenance of it. And that's where the big savings that BIM and the elements we're talking, I'll be talking about come into play because decisions you make at the design stage can have considerable cost implications over the lifetime of a project. I think the problem we have with BIM, it's focused very much on the design construction phase, which then starts to get into topics around software, what choice do we make, how do I implement it, how do I work with everybody else. And the biggest misconception, I think, is that BIM has to be 3D. Mm. BIM doesn't have to be 3D. If it doesn't answer a question, to me, it's visualisation. And the key to BIM is, and to, to 3D is to validate and inform where it's appropriate. I think we, you know, we, we talked in the past about large-scale projects, especially infrastructure projects. When you've got several thousand assets you're trying to model in a 3D world, the model becomes unworkable whether that's a road scheme, a landscape scheme, a building scheme. So you have to start compromising on the geometry. So the best way to compromise that is have placeholders that describe the information without having to actually physically draw the geometry. So I think that's that's some of the keys around the misconceptions of BIM. And one of those is the, uh, the choice of software. And there was a general, because of certain vendors have been very successful mm-hmm. at promoting their software as the BIM solution, there's a lot of misconception around what software you've got to buy and losing track of the, the key element really is what have I got to achieve and what have I got to deliver? Uh, and just by buying a piece of software, one of the things I often, when I do presentations, one of the things I always say is you can't buy BIM in the box. <laughs> just because I've got word, it doesn't make me a journalist or it doesn't right. make me a author. That's a great comparison. That's a great yeah. analogy. <laughs> so it's that sort of, uh, just by one, by one piece of software, it doesn't make you an expert in BIM and doesn't deliver BIM. So I hope that gives you a flavour of some of the issues we come across on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, no, it does. Eh? So it's almost a challenge of, or a problem of the messaging around BIM was too good, right? It was so effective that now people, sometimes I even wonder if people know what BIM stands for. Um, Because over time, and if you, depending on which article you're reading or which definition you're looking at, the the M can stand for something different. The I can stand for something different. So how has that, so you mentioned, uh, gave a snapshot of it that you can't buy BIM in a box. So when you're having conversations with customers and you say the word BIM, I imagine that they either say, yes, I need to do it. Where can I buy it? Or, yeah. or it sort of turns them off. So what have you found in terms of trying to get, because you know, the transition from 2D to 3D is something that's, that's important in the industry, right? So how do you get around the misconception of BIM as a term to, to show people that, listen, you might already be doing it, but here's how you complete the process. What's that dynamic like? Yeah, so again, you know, what we're striving to move towards in the UK, and I think it's a, a it's an objective of the UK government as well, is to effectively drop the term BIM. Uh, mm. As you said, there are lots of definitions around BIM. Everyone's claiming BIM as their own. So you, as you mentioned, people are starting to talk about 
BIM building information modeling. I've come across SIM, which is site information modeling, <laughs> WIM, as in water information modeling. Oh my God. BIM, landscape information wow. modeling. That's... So I'm, I'm looking for Tim, who's technical, <laughs> technology information modeling, whatever. So they're all, everyone's trying to get their own little piece of the action. Uh, and because of all that, users just either have two concerns. One is the cost, because they don't know what they're doing. They're unclear what they've got to deliver. And they, they don't know where to start. So all that confusion leads to either one of two things. One is they do a lot of investment or bad judged investment and say it never worked for them. The second one is that they lead to confusion and it leads to inertia. They don't actually go anywhere. So what we're trying to picture being in the context of really is digital construction. And if you start saying to people, let's talk about digital construction and potentially digital maintenance as well, that resonates with people because they're, they're using a digital system, they're using a CAD mm-hmm. solution or some sort of digital system anyway. So applying that, which they've been doing for the last 10, 20 years, to their design processes, their implementation processes, resonates with people. So we tended to talk more about digital construction now as the term and exchanging data between mm-hmm. different parties requires you to do that through standards, protocols, exchange points. And those are the bits that are BIM. Those are the bits that define how we transfer the data, we communicate with each other. It's, that is just a small part of it. And I often refer to BIM now as the framework that delivers Mm -hmm. construction so that's how we start and when we start talking to people in that sort of mindset it frees them up a little bit about this confusing term they can understand that they can engage with digital construction because they are now they can see potentially how digital construction can lead to 3d printing 3d processes fabrication on-site off-site that their model can be used in a digital way and that resonates with them without getting to all the standards and terminology that goes with BIM. Right. Not this this big, heavy monster that, oh, my God, there's all these things associated with BIM. It, it yeah, yeah. makes it an ease, like an entry point, like, oh, OK, so that's I don't I don't have to invest tens of thousands of dollars. I don't have to hire all these new people. We're actually some people are probably already doing it. Right. And yeah. uh, so that's OK. And I think like any any element like that. There's, a, there's a cloud of mystery that uh, is propagated by acronyms that come in so one of the you know one of the things we, we when i start talking to students when we start presenting to students uh, i say well yeah you've got these terms like an employer's information requirement which is fundamentally a brief what have i got to do mm-hmm. as soon as you put it in that context An employer's information requirement is technically a brief. People understand what a brief is. And sometimes you get this, and then people then say EIR, which is employer's information requirement. And then we talk about the BIM execution plan. And again, I just say to people, well, that's just how we're going to do it. How are we going to deliver this project? And it's put it into those contexts and the sort of plain English, I suppose, or plain language terms is where... We're trying to sort of position BIM and the plain language is something that's, that's been key over the last 12 months again to get rid of some of those. I suppose it's inevitable isn't it? When, when you start talking to anybody in, in a closed industry, you always introduce acronyms 
and everyone understands it inside the uh, the circle of friends, shall we call it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but outside of that, it just it becomes a mystery and almost impenetrable if you're not careful. Right. And so another term that has surfaced that's I would say similar to BIM or at least shares some components of it is digital twin. Mm. And so how would you say, and Dave, I know that you have a lot of thoughts on digital twin as well and you have been following that. How would you compare the two, digital twin and BIM? Do you get questions about that from customers? How do you explain it? Do you you think that that's something that, you know, is digital construction a part of a digital twin model? You know, how would you explain that? To people, I mean this. This is fascinating because you can imagine this is a mirror conversation with somebody in the manufacturing space. Mm. You know, I think that for me, the way that these conversations roll out is whether it's you know someone on the construction side or the building side or someone on the manufacturing side is is that the difference in manufacturing the dilemma becomes is a lot of people think digital mock-up which is analogous to Mike's description of, you know, focusing on the construction of the building, they tend to equate that with a digital twin. They think, isn't that just a fancy name for a digital mock-up? And no, it's not. You know, it involves data that reflects the current state of a system, whether that system's a car or a airplane or a building, and, you know, what its current state is in operation. And it's, you know, to Mike's point earlier, he made a really good point about the fact that it's the life cycle cost that really matters more than anything. And, you know, having data available to you in the right, in the right way is what makes those initiatives work. And so, you know, a digital twin to me and BIM are very analogous because I think of BIM the same way. If I, if I want to really think about, you know, the, the benefit there, it's all of the operational data that I can look at as an owner-operator, you know, throughout the life cycle of the property. Yeah, I think I agree with the data. I think the, uh, if you look at any other industry, I think the, there's no way in the world they would go and commission, you know, 20,000 parts for a new car engine unless they'd actually prototyped it in a digital world first. Sure. That make sure the parts fit, that the wear and tear. Again, the aeronautical industry, they don't go and build planes without putting them in air tunnels and testing the hell out of them. Mm-hmm. But when we come to construction, we often produce a 2D plan, an elevation, some contract documentations, bills of quantities, and give it to a contractor and say, right, build this, please, from this disparate information. Yeah, but even the you know even the fashion industry now, the, the marketing and fashion. I mean, all that is digital. They'll they'll show you different bottle designs in the virtual world. They'll give you different labelling. All that's in the virtual world before they commission a single penny in terms of manufacturing. But when we come to construction, we just still work off two D plans, two D drawings, specifications. Uh, and I think there's a general acceptance that. Certainly, I heard the other day that I think the construction industry is probably about 30 years behind the rest of all other manufacturing, advertising, automotive industries, and they've got to catch up very, very quickly. Yeah. Well, you mentioned also that one of the limiting factors sometimes in being able to construct those models is simply the overwhelming size of them. And, uh, you know, that's 
that's true. And, and, you know, it expands if you think about an individual building and the systems attached to it. Now let's, let's make it a campus. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. There's common systems within the campus. And how do I understand the interplay between all those things? I think key to, key to all that is the, that I in, in BIM information, the data is becoming king because it, it, that data has got a, has two purposes. A, as a designer, you're creating data, but also you're working in the real world, which has got data attached to it and allowing that flow of data and the exchange of data and this concept of the Internet of Things where you actually, the digital model, this, you know, to this, extending that idea of the digital twin, the digital, digital model is not only the one that is going to be built, but once it's built, if it's built with sensors on it, and it can be recorded and fed back into the digital model, your digital model becomes almost the day-to-day analysis of your real-world environment. So a great example I've seen recently is where they're they're building or they're doing a 3D print of a bridge, a stainless steel bridge over a canal in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. They've actually digitally printed. I think it's an Autodesk project that have been involved with that. But that bridge will have sensors in it and those sensors were feed back into the digital model. So any of the engineers can come in on a daily basis and see the stresses and strains on the bridge in the real world, understand the issues well before they actually happen. So that it will start informing maintenance. And that total connectivity, that 360 look at construction, design and management is where BIM becomes key because it's making sure that data can exchange your processes, your protocols, your standards, your frequency of the exchange points. That's what BIM defines in that overall 360 framework. I agree. And I think that one of the unfortunate things is, is that you just described or we've just discussed BIM perfectly, I think. But, you know, what happens is you get marketers that latch onto three-letter acronyms and attach mm-hmm. it to a product. Yeah. And instead of it having its rightful places, BIM is a uh, a philosophy about how to implement processes and how to you know deal with data, as Mike was just describing. You're, you're doing it today. You're just you know companies do it today. It's like manufacturers before computers came along. They designed airplanes without without computers. Uh, it's just a different way of doing it and a better way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we get lost. PLM's got the same problem. That's yeah. the. I was going to say the same thing, Dave. That it's ironic that BIM was actually conceived to help the problem that you were mentioning, Mike. That you know the AEC world, you know, is thirty years behind other industries when it comes to adopting technology and, and mm-hmm. things like that. And so, you know, BIM I think was meant to help that right and bring AEC into the modern age, if you will, and. I think it did have an impact, a positive impact, and, and it did help in some regard. But then, it the pendulum swung so far to the other side that now it's it's almost acting as a barrier. I mean, one of the interesting things what I often find with people, you know, they 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 listen to conversations like we're having here, and it all resonates. Mm-hmm. But it's you know, where do I go now? <laughs> what am I next? <laughs> when I go right. back to the office. You know, yeah. what do I start doing? And 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 one of the key things that we've we've talked about are if you're, going to, if you're going to implement BIM there's two things you've got to, to understand I think one is what clients do you want to work with because your your BIM strategy as a company 
needs to align to your business strategy. So if you want to go and work with IBM, there's no, you know, you look at what IBM are doing, how they've implemented things and what are they doing, and you start aligning your skill sets and your knowledge to align with their processes. So if you start to think about BIM, I think it's understanding what clients you want to work with, what do they do, what do they see BIM or their digital construction process to be, and then start trying to think about how do I align myself over the next 12 months, two years, three years, whatever your business plan is, to get there. And I always said BIM is not like a light switch. Today, we're not doing BIM, and tomorrow we are. Switch the light on, we're now doing BIM. It's a journey. People went from drawing boards to CAD over a period of 10, 15 years. I think the jump between CAD and BIM is going to be a lot quicker. But we have got to start taking those small steps, and we often call them BIM wins. A BIM mm-hmm. win is just that on this project, I'm going to try and look at 3D or look at the data exchange points. Don't try and do the whole lot in one go. So as a takeaway, I often say to people, think about that small steps to get to the bigger picture. And then the second one is understanding the deliverables. Very often people engage in a BIM project and it's a conversation of all the time where people phone and say, okay, Mike, I've been asked to get involved with a BIM project. What do I do now? <laughs> and I said, well, what have you got to deliver? I don't know. <laughs> well, go and find out where you're going to deliver. Come back to me. We'll have the conversation. And when people say BIM, it, it's, you know, people go running, running off to the hills saying, you know, oh, I'll do BIM, I'll do BIM, but we're actually asking what they've got to deliver. Now, if somebody said to you tomorrow, okay, I want you to build a new building, you wouldn't just go off and build a building. You'd ask, well, what type of building do I want? Is it a school? Is it a university? Is it a uh, you know, research establishment? And once you say, well, okay, it's research, okay, is it going to house 50 people, 500 people, 5,000? You ask lots of questions. Mm-hmm. When people mention BIM, they just say, okay, and walk away and panic. They don't ask questions. <laughs> Uh, so they don't know what they've got to deliver so we, this is this adds the confusion because you've got lots and lots of people running around in the dark trying to put together a jigsaw where you haven't even got a picture to, to go with do you think it's an intimidation factor like oh i should know what bim is so i don't want to ask any questions because i don't want to seem stupid or yeah it's just yeah. it's interesting that people would just you know okay i'll go uh, off yeah, and figure I, it out <laughs> i've got a yeah one or two yeah, you know, people have said that. I can't go back to my client. I suppose you have one opportunity, don't you, in a, in a meeting that you're in, a, in an off, you know, your first project kickoff meeting. You've got the architect there, the engineer there, the planner, the client, and they'll say, "Can you deliver BIM?" And everyone's nodding their head, "Yes, we can deliver BIM." Mm-hmm. And it's like the uh, emperor's new clothes or the you know the elephant in the room. Everyone's saying yes, but don't actually know what they're doing. And everyone walks out of that room thinking, okay, we've got to deliver BIM. What, what, what do we do now? They're actually saying, well, actually, what are we going to deliver? How are we going to deliver that? What do we need to achieve? What are the deliverables at that first meeting? So as you say, people walk away from it. And therefore, because they've had that opportunity and they haven't said anything, they then walk around in, you know, behind closed doors trying to fathom out a strategy Mm-hmm. and fit that together and they've almost lost that chance to say well actually can we define BIM what does it mean on this project 
what do we want to achieve and how are we going to achieve it? Yeah. And it's funny, you mentioning that reminds me of an example of a friend of mine who was working for a civil engineering and design firm. And they were out, he was with his boss. They were having a conversation with a potential client. The client was saying, you know, all the different things that they were looking for in a, in a firm. He said, but you know, I can't find anybody that does BIM. Do you guys do BIM? And his boss said, yes, absolutely. We do BIM. And he said, all right, well then let's have the meeting. They, <laughs> they get back to the office and my boss tells my friend, okay, you have to figure out how we do BIM. Mm-hmm. So right. he promised it and, you know, just to win the opportunity to pitch the client yeah. and really had no idea what he was promising. So it's exactly to your point. It's the old adage, isn't it? The answer's yes. Now what's the question? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so it's almost like, it's not that we need to stop talking about BIM, but it's talking about it in a different way and not right out of the gate, right? It's, mm. So you don't open the conversation with, so let's do BIM or how do you do BIM or where can I get BIM, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's funny that we're saying it's about how you talk about it when we're, you know, when it comes to construction projects or anything like that. But it is a real problem, right, with how people have been using the term and misunderstanding the term, and that has translated into a lot of barriers in the industry. So what would be your advice to people in terms of having the conversation? You sort of already alluded to that. Start asking questions, right? Don't just go off and try and figure it out. Ask more um, questions. Yeah. One thing we are coming up on our on our time, but I did want to get your take on something that we didn't actually uh, preface or discuss before. But when we were talking about you know the fact that the the industry is uh, a bit behind in terms of technology adoption, it made me think about some of the projects you see on the news, uh, at least here in the Bay Area, with two projects in San Francisco specifically, where. You know, they're brand new structures. <clears throat> one is a very tall building. Another one is a, a, a bus terminal where for all intents and purposes, they should have been designed and built using the BIM process, right? Digital designs and the testing and, uh, you know, simulation and, and all of that, right? And yet they're built and before they're even fully used, the building is starting to sink the bus terminal ceiling is cracking, right? And mm. you've seen some of this happen in, in other areas too. And so then the conversations in, you know, over dinner amongst friends or, or even colleagues is, how can that happen in today's day and age when people are using such sophisticated technology to to design these things and right, build these things? So not that that relates to BIM specifically, but what do you think is happening in those situations? This might be a little bit of a loaded question, but I'm just curious to get your take on what you think might be happening here. Because it seems to be happening more frequently than it should, at least from a layman's perspective. Yeah, I think, I think design build is a very difficult element. That's one of the challenges we have because generally when you put in a design build contract, you very often start putting the spade in the ground before some of the elements have actually been fully rationalised and agreed in some cases because of the timeframes. You've almost, you know, these large contractors over here offer design-build solutions and they are almost starting to dig out the foundations before they've actually finalised the footprint. And once they've got the footprint, they then start building and that is one of the big challenges that we're trying, you know, we're, I don't think we've got an answer to it just yet, but trying to sort of 
get people to hold back a little bit. I mean, again, clients want to get the thing. I mean, depends how funding works. Very often, funding has a, a time frame, a, a window of opportunity. So, getting the the first, you know, as I used to work in landscape design, sometimes just getting the actual first digger on site and doing some excavation means at least the project's got to continue and finish. It can't get cut if they've already started on it, or less chance it being cut halfway through. So we've, we've almost got to ex- expect the clients to be a little bit more. I think part of it is educating clients actually, and make them aware that you know an extra fifty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, even you know two hundred fifty thousand dollars spent earlier in the process will reap rewards further down the line because there's nothing worse than finding. You know, you spend five million dollars on a project, and somebody comes back to you and says, "Well, you need an extra ten, you know, an extra ten million, and it's going to it's going to take six months longer." Well, you've already spent five. Now, if you've only spent, you know, a quarter of a million, it's easier to pull out of the project or cut your cloth accordingly at that point, rather than when you've committed yourself. So, I think it's getting clients to step back a little bit, even getting the you know the budget holders to sometimes be a little bit more practical in what they're trying to get the contractors or the implementers, whoever they may be, to start sort of, as we said, virtualizing it first, test the model, prove it can work. It's almost that proof, prove it can work before you build it. At the moment, we're still going very much on gut instinct. You know, I've been doing Mm. this for 20 years, I know I can deliver it. Mm. Well, that doesn't mean that on this site you know exactly what's happening. So getting the right information up, up front. Biggest issue we often have is services. We don't often know where the services are, cabling runs, etc. So people, you know, suddenly the digger goes in the ground and you know half the city goes uh, dead because they've cut through a main a mains cable, <laughs> something like that. Mm-hmm. Those sort of things are still happening, even in this so-called digital world, because we're trying to. I think sometimes rush run before you know before we can walk. That's a good point. So uh, you know, everybody wants to finish under budget, and you know whether it's the building owners or the, the contractor firm, they want to they want to win the business and be the first. So yeah, I mean, building smart. I think got, got some figures a few years ago now. And said for every one dollar you spend in preparation you can save 20 times that during construction and 60 times that through the life cycle of a project. Mm-hmm. And people often think, again, because we're very focused on the, the capital expenditure, the actual cost mm-hmm. of building it, mm-hmm. we rush to get that done. And we're not actually thinking about, actually, is this the right solution for you know this building? In You, know, you think about a, a highway, the cost of building the highway is insignificant compared to the ongoing maintenance of that highway over the 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years that it's in place. Well, and as a citizen, I would rather the city spend an extra couple of hundred thousand dollars or however much it would cost to ensure the testing and and the model and whatever it takes to make sure that this yeah. this bridge isn't going to collapse than my tax dollars be spent building a bridge that then has to be rebuilt at an even greater cost, you know, 10 or 20 years down the road. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's due diligence, isn't it? Right. 
Right. You don't go and build, buy a new company without due, doing due diligence, understanding where it is, what it's doing, and the future prospects. But when we start constructing, we don't often take into account. And I've, I've heard a term so often being used now, which is this uh, value engineered. So value engineering, which is basically let's cut the costs. Uh, oh, my so God. <laughs> value engineering. If you talk to anybody in the construction industry, it's all about value engineering, which is a different sort of polite way of saying, right, we've got to, we've got to save, you know, $200,000 on this project. How are we going to do it? Rather than saying, well, actually, if we do make that $200,000 saving now, what's the implications for the future? We're going to put in, you know, infrastructure that may need to be ripped out in 50 years' time and cost us, you know, that $300,000. So sometimes spend a little bit more now can be better in the long term. Mm-hmm. Well, if I encounter a firm that wants to do value engineering, I think I'll walk away. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, it sounded like you uh, had a comment. Oh, no, I, uh, it's funny. I was just thinking about the, uh, the point Mike was making about taking the time to make sure that you have it right at the beginning and what you can save down the way is just such a you know typical problem again regardless of whether we're talking construction or manufacturing the example that flew into my head was Boeing arguably has one of the more mature you know PLM processes and digitalization processes out there for manufactured products and yet you know in spite of all that they broke one of their own rules implemented a single point of failure in a control system and you've got a airplane now that they're having trouble selling people have canceled orders and everything else plm or bim don't prevent you from making bad decisions hopefully they give you a framework for reducing the number but i you know people this is a long journey Mm -hmm. projects like mike works on can you know take five to ten years right mike yeah To, yeah. to get to the operating stage you know and people have annual budgets and put a lot of undue pressure on you know, the wrong places in the design process. So that's a good piece of advice from Mike, I think, for anybody listening to the podcast. Excellent. And I think that's a good place to end it because we have reached our time. But a very interesting conversation. I hope it resonates with our listeners and that they take your advice, Mike, and and change their conversation a bit and not be so intimidated, right? BIM is not something that's that's intimidating, but it is a process. It's not something that you can do overnight. And so thanks so much for your time, Mike. We really appreciate you being here with us. And and thank you, Dave. And thanks everybody out there for listening to another episode of Beyond 3D. If you have not subscribed, please hit the subscribe button and share this with your colleagues and other folks that you think would be interested in topics around 3D. And with that, have a great day, everybody. Thanks for your time. Thank you for joining us on the Beyond 3D podcast, hosted by TechSoft3D. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review, or subscribe on SoundCloud. To listen to past episodes or learn more about TechSoft3D, visit www.techsoft3d.com forward slash blog. Send us comments and suggestions at info at techsoft3d.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next episode of Beyond 3D. Beyond 3D.